Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we are about to record what I happen to know is your very favorite episode of the year. Always, every year, for however many years we've been doing it. I think this is our fifth year. Is that right? It's kind of amazing when you think about it that you were the one who came up with the idea for the Graduate Student Research Contest. And I was kind of like... You don't believe in uh, in the power of of the youth. I have always believed that the children are our future, and we're gonna something something and let them lead the way. But I have to admit that I have been totally convinced over the years. And one of the things that just so impresses me is that not only do we get a flood of applicants, but the quality of the research keeps getting better. And there is no better testament to that than what we are about to hear today. Yeah, we're going to be talking with Nora Rykoski of the University of Pennsylvania. And she's got a lot to say about a topic that I think is going to be of interest to our listeners, and that is the role of philanthropy in K-12 education. So I think the thing that I'm most excited about is that Nora has taken on a topic that was once of great interest to me. I will say it bordered on obsession, and that is the role that that really plutocrats, there's no other way to describe them, the role that they play in influencing and shaping K-12 education. And, you know, over the years, I've come to find the conversation around that is a little too, it's a little too black and white. And, you know, there's, there's way too much emphasis on the fact that somebody like a Betsy DeVos is in it for the money. And so I think that Nora's research in this episode is perfectly timed because she lays out for us what's so dangerous about the outsized influence that these folks have. But she there's a level of sophistication to her analysis that I certainly didn't have in my early days as a blogger. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're going to let her off the hook for any criticisms people may level here because like all smart graduate students, she was trying to offer as much nuance as possible here so that nobody could radically misinterpret her arguments. So Nora, we take full responsibility for anything that people take out of context that you say here. If you get nasty emails, you just forward those. Our email address is jenniferberkshire at gmail.com and we're happy to handle any problems. Thank you for that, Jack. Helpful as always. And if you are a grad student in our listening audience, we will be reprising the grad student research contest later this year. So definitely keep a listen out for details and be sure to try to take advantage of the opportunity to showcase your own stellar research. All right, Jennifer, is there any more intro we need before we dive in with Nora? I don't believe there is, Jack. (laughs) Now, 
now to the main event. Our special guest is Nora Rykowski. She is a PhD candidate in education and political science at the University of Pennsylvania, and her research focuses on wealthy private actors, philanthropists, and philanthropic corporations in shaping the priorities and purposes of public education. Nora argues that the growing entanglement between private actors and public education is an urgent political issue because the loud voices of powerful and wealthy actors increasingly dominate our political discourse. In other words, this is important and timely stuff. I'm looking at the ways that wealthy, philanthropic, and corporate actors influence public education. So I'm thinking about this in terms of the ways that they use donations and how they gift their own computing devices or curricular programs to schools and how that shapes what students learn, what schools look like, and the priorities that are picked up sometimes outside of the schoolroom in policymaking spaces. And the first thing you need to know about the interests that animate Nora is that they were spurred by her experiences working first in Silicon Valley and then at a charter network that was on the receiving end of Silicon Valley largesse. Right out of college, I worked at Google, and part of my role, I was working in the legal department, but part of my role there gave me an opportunity to work with Google's philanthropic arm, which at the time was called Google.org. So at Google.org, I spent time on supporting some of their initiatives to bring educational technology and tech into schools and to sort of technologize a bunch of different spaces, places outside of just strictly technology spaces. And then I went on to work in KIPP Bay Area Schools, which is a charter management organization. And at KIPP, I was responsible for bringing technology like Google into the classroom through personalized learning or blended learning and computer science curriculum. So those two professional experiences very much drive my research agenda, the things I'm interested in. Long before she had any idea that she would end up studying the influence of philanthropists in schools, Nora says she was very aware of the heavy hand being exerted by Google and other Silicon Valley influencers. Some of my early experiences were when I was 23, fresh out of undergrad, and I was going into schools with Google and trying to show teachers who had been in these spaces for some of them decades how technology could revolutionize their classroom. And I became, of course, self-conscious and sort of insecure about the fact that I had no idea how teaching should work. I had no idea what was best for students. But... I was at Google and there was this expectation that I was bringing something very special to schools, which was my Googler experience. Probably my biggest catalyzing moment was in 2017, I went to this conference that was hosted by Code.org, which was one of the big players in the computer science for all movement. It was the who's who of the big wigs in technology in the Bay Area. So it was Sheryl Sandberg, Peggy McIntosh from Microsoft, Susan Wojcicki from YouTube, Melinda Gates was there. And it was all of these powerful women in tech and then a number of politicians. There were hardly any students or computer science educators 
And it was a cell. It was a cell that said computer science education is liberatory. It is emancipatory. If you learn computer science, you can change the world. But it was pretty light on specifics. And it made me reflect on what it means to have a heavy-handed, philanthropic set of organizations, corporations, and philanthropic foundations sort of guiding the conversation about what schools should do, what they can do, and how legitimate it is for corporations and philanthropic actors to be involved in those processes. One of the things that struck me when looking at your work and then thinking about what you call pipeline philanthropy in this great article that you have in Educational Policy and which is open access, so if people want to read it, they can go find it online, is this model that was actually pioneered by companies like Gillette where they gave away the razors and charged for the blades, or by companies like Epson that make printers and then deeply discount them and make their money off of the toner. It seems that there is a model that can be borrowed by corporations that are looking to profit from public education by getting in the door via a donation and then later figuring out how to leverage that customer base. And I'm just wondering if you can talk to that at all. What I was observing, especially during COVID, was this set of situations, this phenomena where corporations were stepping in to donate their services and products to meet what they saw as a perceived need. All of these students were sent home. Teachers had to move their classrooms online. And corporations stepped up to sort of fill this need by donating their online services and platforms. All of those companies already had a paid product at the time, some of which were already being used in schools and many of which were not. And so what they were able to do was donate their core service and product as a gift. And just as you said, they were able to convert or those gifts, those donations into paid contracts after the fact. And it's not just paid contracts where companies in this specific brand of corporate generosity can end up shaping what happens in schools. Actors, philanthropists who are donating and gifting to schools directly are exerting a sort of disproportionate power over what happens at schools. And part of what I'm thinking about here is if you receive Chromebooks, there is a type of pressure to use them. You can't use that money for other purposes. It's targeted. It's restricted. You can't convert it into, say, paying your teachers more or excusing lunch debts. You have to use it for Chromebooks because they've been given to you in the form that they are Chromebooks. So then you have these either very fancy paperweights that you don't use that sit in your classroom, which definitely happens, or you have this kind of pressure to figure out how to incorporate them. And once you've incorporated them, it becomes reasonable in many ways to try and standardize around whatever that product was. So you got Samsung Chromebooks. It doesn't make sense to buy Acer Chromebooks because then you don't have uniformity in your product. Okay, so we need to pause here for just a moment because if you're like me, you are probably gnashing your teeth at this point thinking, grr, greedy companies, grr. But Nora says that this whole idea of pipeline philanthropy is more complicated than just companies wanting to sell stuff. I have to be sort of careful about how I frame 
the intention of corporations, whether they are intending to create these paid relationships, these contracts, or if they are participating in a generous kind of philanthropy. And I think this is a really touchy distinction because I don't know that it's always reasonable to say that they're acting in bad faith. They're just trying to create this pipeline of customers. They're out to get students. I don't necessarily think that's what's happening. And having spent time at Google with some wonderful people who are very much invested in literally and figuratively in trying to help students and families, I think it is often an example of doing and practicing what both the individuals inside of the companies and the companies more broadly think is the right course of action for students. That persuasive vision is one with which you are no doubt deeply familiar. You've heard it on the TED Talk stage and read it in a million op-eds from corporate leaders and philanthropists. It's endlessly repeated by a veritable ecosystem of like-minded groups and individuals. And Nora says that it's essential that we understand the sincerity that often underlies that worldview. It's really often very authentic. It is a genuinely held belief for many that blended learning does allow us to personalize learning, and that is the ultimate goal in education. Or online learning allows us to reach more students and, to borrow some language, democratize education. That is a good thing. And so you have this whole sort of logical frame and set of understandings about how education should work that is guided in many ways by people who are sitting on the periphery of practicing education, they're sitting in companies, but that have their own ideas about what education should be and how it should work. And they're able to use their positions either through their own status as wealthy individuals and philanthropists or through their status as the makers and producers of a product that they can sell with great advertising and tell a wonderful story, they're able to get those ideas out into the world and circulate them in this really powerful way that makes a cohesive narrative about what education should be doing. And it's persuasive. One of the things that Jennifer and I actually regularly push back against is the notion that the problem with privatization is that privatizers are seeking first and foremost to make a profit and that we should therefore be wary of privatization because it will lead to dollars that might otherwise have gone to educate young people to leave the education system in the form of corporate profits. And what we will often say is that can be a problem But the bigger problem is the erosion of democratic control. And one of the things that I am thinking about when reading your work is about how you can quite easily do an end run around democratic control by giving something away. And you may not even have the intention of doing an end run around democratic control. It may be that you are doing what you believe as a corporate entity is best for schools and is best for young people. But the problem is that because it doesn't go through 
a process whereby communities can deliberate over what the possible consequences of, let's say, widespread adoption of Chromebooks might be. And because the communities then don't have a say in determining what they want the role of whatever the technology is, Chromebooks say, um, there's this risk that the mission of education, right, this fundamental thing, will end up being transformed because there is technology in place in the schools, folks feel like they need to use it, there are resources that the school now has, let's say, for computer science rather than for, say, music education, and... All of a sudden, we can find ourselves in a position where the meaning and nature of schools has changed and we haven't even had an opportunity to discuss it because it happened quietly and it happened quickly. And the reason that it happened that way was because of a gift. And you don't need any malevolent actors in order for this to happen. I'm thinking about Steve Jobs in the late 70s, who is frustrated by the pace of adoption of computers. He's really explicit about this in his interviews. And he is frustrated by how difficult it is to work through bureaucracy of school boards. This is stymieing progress for him. So he realizes he can donate computers at the time, the Apple II, a million years ago, it feels like. So he works ultimately with the California Congress to try and make it possible for him to get a tax break. But he's working to bypass these bureaucratic structures because public deliberation is too slow. And if we want to make progress in terms of reforming and changing educational processes, and I'm speaking not as myself, but as someone who's interested in efficiency and a certain type of practice being adopted, there are times when these democratic processes that you're describing don't necessarily work to the benefit of a fast-paced and efficiency-minded reformer. So I think you're exactly right that donations of products especially, but of other kinds, can bypass and sort of circumvent certain processes so that they don't get trapped in bureaucratic conversations. But the risk there is that those processes often exist for a reason. They're a check on powerful and outside actors, among other things, from exerting a kind of power over the system in a way that might be counter to what members of the community are interested in, or perhaps experts who are participating in some of those decision-making processes. Let's talk about the example of Bill Gates, because one of the things that I hear, often from educators, highly informed, highly professional people, is that Bill Gates is operating through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in order to sell Microsoft programs. And that is really not my experience with the Gates Foundation. Now, I have written some not nice things about the Gates Foundation. So I am not coming to the rescue of poor Bill Gates. But it does seem that the Gates Foundation is operating in good faith. They are just operating with a different set of beliefs and assumptions about how the world 
should work and does work, as well as about schools. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the fact that these actors who are outside the education system, by virtue of the fact that they are outside the system, can be acting in good faith and can be acting in a manner that has nothing to do with the corporate bottom line and still end up producing outcomes in our schools that raise questions about their motives. The bottom line for me here is I agree completely that someone like Bill Gates, it is not all about the bottom line of selling their own products. But I think they are working to reinforce a world or a society that shares their values and shares their vision for how society should work, what it should prioritize, and that one of the things that philanthropy allows someone like Bill Gates to do is to push the vision or his vision of what schools should do and how they should fit into society and a set of social relations in a way that conforms with those ideas. At the bottom line, it is about ideas. It's about a preference for a world and a kind of world order that sure, aligns with some business practices, perhaps even free market principles, a certain kind of economic orientation. And in some spaces, you might call this neoliberalism, where we can create a society that reflects those values by orienting schools toward a certain set of purposes. In other words, Bill Gates has a particular vision of the world, and because his pockets are so deep and his philanthropic heft so hefty, he has the ability to essentially reshape the entire public K-12 universe around that vision. Or at least he's been trying. Bill Gates has been on, on record saying that the American high school is failing. It is not serving students. What does he mean by that? Well, he's interested in students coming out of high school and being able to get jobs. That's a really specific kind of vision. That's a different vision than, say, students being able to come out of schools and live harmoniously with other people. That's a different vision than, say, for students to have this experience where they come to better understand their own values, their self, their place in the world. These are not incompatible values, but he's interested in a certain type of outcome. He is a, a major player in the development of Common Core, and Common Core has three primary purposes for college, life, and a career, career readiness. So he is instrumental in many ways through his philanthropic action in bringing people together. He built the table that these people sit at by donating to the creation of the Common Core and then paid for it in many ways along with the government. To be very clear, the government plays a huge role here. He paid for the implementation of Common Core through funding initiatives and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was really a big part of the story and how Common Core was advertised and brought to schooling communities. And that brings us to what's really corrosive about what Nora calls pipeline philanthropy. Bill Gates' passion for school improvement may not be driven by a desire to sell more Microsoft stuff, but it ends up eroding democracy all the same. There's an erosion of democracy in the sense that wealthy actors are able to exert their vision over public purposes without any kind of check 
on that power. So if you think about the creation of the Common Core, for example, the way that many advocates for Common Core talk about it is that there were teachers and administrators and scholars also involved in the Common Core process. So I'm not debating that. But Bill Gates also got to be a part of those conversations in one way or another. And he is not a democratic actor. He is a wealthy philanthropic actor who was able to exert influence as a result of his money, not necessarily because he was an elected representative. So I think there's an erosion in the sense that democratic processes are subverted or circumvented by actors who use wealth as a mechanism to gain access to spaces about decision-making. But I think it also diminishes the voices of the public and other politically representative actors by excluding them from some spaces. It makes commonsensical this idea that there is only one or the best way of using schools. And I think that is part of a very powerful and strategic kind of idea circulation that is inherently not democratic, but more importantly, there are no mechanisms of accountability to regulate those kinds of actors from participating in these spaces. No, I do not need to tell you that we're living through a moment of unprecedented influence by the wealthiest among us, and they all seem to be focused on education. They want more charter schools, looking at you, Michael Bloomberg, or they don't think we should have schools anymore. Hey, Betsy. Nora wants us to understand that the more influence that wealthy actors accumulate, the more our voices get crowded out, even at the local level. Your ability to go to the school board meeting on the one hand and share your discontent at the way the school board is operating, you may be shouted down because there's a nationalized set of conversations that are happening at your school board meeting where you have outside actors who are paying also for certain school board representatives to be elected. You have thinking about the very live set of conversations around CRT, which have been connected to national organizations and national philanthropic actors, as well as political actors. And so I think your ability to exert influence on the decisions that are happening both in your community and on the larger scale are minimized in many ways as more powerful and wealthy actors get more space at the table. So what, if anything, can we do about the amount of influence that philanthropists and the very wealthy have, not just over our schools, but over our public discourse? Nora says that enabling the public to see where the money's coming from and the strings that are attached to it is absolutely key, but that ultimately we're going to need a fairer tax system. One thing that members of the public can do that is, in my view, a way of participating in the democratic process is to encourage bodies like school boards, especially to bring about more regulatory policy that limits the ability of philanthropic actors to become entangled with schools with no accountability. So some of this means putting in place and advocating for a set of measures that do demand something like an RFP, which is a request for proposal that's transparent the public has access to. Other ways might be to change our tax laws, to to encourage representatives to change tax laws. And I'm thinking about another wonderful book called For-Profit Philanthropy by Dana Brakeman-Reiser and Stephen A. Dean that thinks about the ways that a tax system that demands corporations in particular, but other philanthropic actors have to say who they're donating to and have to say that they have a public purpose for their donation. Like these are more mechanisms to insulate public education from these actors. 
Nora also hopes that we'll see more public challenges of the underlying vision that drives so much of the corporate philanthropic focus on schools right now, that the purpose of K-12 schooling is to prepare future workers, and that's basically it. Corporations are asking schools to, in a sense, train their own future employees. So I call this a kind of downstreaming of the responsibility for training workers onto schools, which is using schools and K-12 education as well as colleges to sort of reinforce this idea that schools should be a place where you get training to go work for, say, Google in the future. And and so I want the public to be aware that that's happening and, again, use their mechanisms to critique that or to call it out. That was Nora Rykowski, the winner of the Have You Heard 2023 Graduate Student Research Contest. A big congratulations to Nora. You will definitely be hearing more about her in the future. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about what partisan philanthropy is likely to mean for public education. Spoiler alert, nothing good. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. The education reform zombie is back. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. So, Jack, I think if we quizzed our listening audience on sort of the top philanthropists in education, in the education space, <laughs> they they would name folks like Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg and, and you know, the, a, a lot of the folks who really drove a particular kind of bipartisan education reform. And, and then they would think about, you know, well, who else is there? Well, of course, there's Betsy DeVos, and she doesn't quite fit that mold because she's an ideologue. And one of the things that I always talk about when I'm out in the world is how, like, every Midwestern state these days has its own conservative billionaire. And so what happens if that enormous amount of money and the influence that they exert becomes more and more starkly partisan. What is that going to mean for the public education project? And from what I see, the answer is nothing good. Yeah, I'm thinking back to our episode that we did with Johan Neem. And you the, think about that episode a I, lot. I do. I think about it all the time. Uh, and I was thinking about the broad point that he was making about the need for public schools to be a bipartisan project, a, a project that everybody feels bought into. And one of the things that we have been seeing in the fracturing of the public education system that is largely a product of privatization is the creation of these balkanized communities. And I think there's a really interesting line of exploration there. Uh, So, you know, Nora and others, I'm sure, will be blazing the trail there in their research, examining what happens next when education philanthropists don't feel hemmed in 
by the real or imagined guardrails that have historically been in place that have suggested that education should be nonpartisan, right? That the politics should be removed from education because there are, there are billions of dollars waiting to come flooding into the schools for particular kinds of ideological projects. And it isn't just on the right, it's on the left as well. And what then happens to the very idea of public education when there are blue schools and red schools, right? When there are schools that are cultivating a quote-unquote patriotic view of America or schools that are quote-unquote anti-racist, you can see this happening and the flow of private philanthropic dollars would absolutely accelerate that. And right now, there aren't really any guidelines about how to make those decisions because in education, we're always dealing with very lean operations and any new dollar is basically a hundred pennies from heaven. And I think that this is something that we should really begin to pay close attention to even while previously partisan philanthropies like the Walton Family Foundation are trying to become more centrist, right, are trying to diffuse the critique that they are really advancing a project from the right, I think we're increasingly going to see philanthropic donations that are absolutely partisan in nature. And I think we're at a moment where that could play a really decisive role in what the future of public education looks like. I think that's such a good point. And people who are in states like Texas who are listening to this know exactly what we're talking about, that the education agenda there, and that really refers both to the efforts to get kids to pick up the tab for for religious private schools and encourage kids to leave the public schools, but also the effort to infuse public schools with religion. So a lot of this is being bankrolled by, by billionaire brothers whose fortune derives from the fracking industry. And they are not a household name at all, and yet they command tremendous influence. And so I think you're absolutely right that we are seeing more and more more of these, you know, actors who are functioning at the state level. But then the other thing that really interests me is how comfortable the the sort of bipartisan billionaire class that we learned so much about from Nora seems to be when it comes to operating in this brave new world. And that actually leads us to the topic for our in the weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Oh, and wow. I know artfully I know, done, Jennifer. Very artfully done. So so Jack and I have been have been monitoring live time what seems like the return of the education reform zombie. And that is a that is a space that is heavily influenced by a certain kind of billionaire. And and I would think that on the you know on the one hand they might be getting really worried right now like you know what's what's going to happen to my public charter school that puts all of its emphasis on test scores in this in this crazy new world without regulations and it's like actually their project seems to be full steam ahead right. so if you want to if you want to hear us talk about what we think is happening 
with the sudden and ferocious return of the Education Reform Project, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of the various extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. You get a custom reading list. If you subscribe at the $10 a rate, $10 a month level, we send you a copy of the paperback version of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and that will hold you until our new book comes out sometime early in 2024. And for those of you who are not going to empty out your Bitcoin e-wallets to join Patreon, uh, your journey ends here. However, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the same free and uh, hopefully entertaining and informative product for you. Uh, in return, we ask only that you help grow the movement because uh, this, after all, is not really a product. It's a a democratic project, and you are a part of it. So uh, you don't need me to tell you what to do. You know what to do. Go out there and do it. Thank you for that, Jack. Jack Schneider, podcast evangelist. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 